From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra. The body really doesn't move forward at that point. That um, very slight movement is the deceleration of the core. Um, the body then moves uh, rather violently backward and to the left. Later on, there is a forward movement that occurs about uh, a half to three quarters of a second later, and that's when he's hit in the head. The head wound has been analyzed now, uh, not only by me, but by, as I say, radiologists and neuroscientists and many others, and most importantly, perhaps, all of the doctors at Parkland Hospital. And it's clear that what the Warren Commission concluded was erroneous. All right, that was... Famed American forensic pathologist Sarah Wecht. I believe that clip is from a JFK assassination conference back in 2013. And um, uh, he was the first civilian ever given permission to examine the Kennedy assassination evidence back in 1972. And as uh, Jim and I were discussing earlier, it was Wecht who first discovered that Kennedy's brain and all related data in the killing or much of the related data in the killing, had gone missing from the National Archives. And then in 1978, Wecht testified before the House Select Committee on Assassinations as the lone dissenter on a nine-member forensic pathology panel re-examining the assassination of JFK. And, of course, uh, Cyril was a, a consultant to Stone for the, film in, uh, for the film JFK, and now 90 years old, still incredibly sharp, and he appears in JFK Revisited. Jim DiEugenio stays with us. He again, of course, wrote the script for JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. Let me just uh, go right to our YouTube live chat, Jim. Roger Vega asks, Jim first brought to light the fact that JFK was against foreign intervention in the Middle East when he spoke on the floor of the Senate. Can you expand on that, Jim? Yes. Kennedy, in 1957 made a very famous speech about the whole Algerian attempt to be free from French colonialism, all right? And Algeria at that time was a predominantly Muslim country. I think it was like 90% uh, Muslim, all right? And Kennedy made a speech about this. Because it, it's, it's, it's much wiser for us to go ahead and get a negotiated peace than it is to support this bloody, horrible war that France, France is involved with to keep Algeria a part of the French Empire. And he said, words to the effect, that you know we have an opportunity here to set a very good example in the Third World. Now, when he becomes president, when Kennedy becomes president, he has a very special relationship with Gamal Abdel Nasser, the president of Egypt, and by far, by far, the most influential and charismatic leader throughout the entire Arab world. All right? And in the long version of the film, the four-hour version, you will see this. This is something we go into. And we also go into the whole... Uh, battle between Kennedy and David Ben-Gurion over the Demona nuclear reactor. Okay? So those are some of the things. See, when you see the, fi the four-hour film, you'll see what I was trying to do. What I was trying to do was to show 
John Foster Dulles' foreign policy before Kennedy, how Kennedy changed that, okay, and how his assassination caused to go back to that, which I believe is a definition, one definition, of a classic coup d'etat. That's the way I look at the Kennedy assassination. All right, and Jim Garrison usually is given credit for the first person to say that, but there was actually two other people who were saying it back in the 60s. The German writer uh, Joachim Jostein and the American attorney Stanley Marks, who wrote a series of overlooked books back at that time. And one of the names of his book is Murder Most Foul, is also the name of Bob Dylan's song about the Kennedy assassination. So the idea of a coup d'etat goes all the way back until the late 60s. And that's what I believe what happened here. All right. You betcha in the YouTube live chat asks, Jim, have you ever talked to Stone about the 1990 movie JFK? And how does he feel about the movie three decades later? That's a good question. How does he feel looking back at it? (laughs) I actually did in my book, The JFK Assassination, The Evidence Today. I actually did. I don't think anybody else has done this. I did a scene-by-scene review of the first hour or so of the film, comparing it to what we have today. In other words, in the declassified documents. And if you go ahead and look at that, that analysis, if anything, the first hour or so kind of understates what happened. You know, in other words, the evidence we have today is even stronger than what, what's in the film. All right? Now, there are some things that I would advise him differently to do. Okay? Um, for instance, the Fletcher Prouty scene with Donald Sutherland in Washington. What I would advise him to do is I would have said, you know, you ought to use Richard Case Nagel because Garrison actually did meet with Richard Case Nagel at the time. He didn't meet Fletcher until later, okay? And then if you want to put the stuff in about Vietnam, there's this professor uh, at Ohio University who wrote Garrison a letter about this subject, 26 pages, okay, single-spaced, handwritten, on how Kennedy's murder caused the escalation of the Vietnam War. I would use that instead. See, those are some of the things I would have... I would have advised him about, just to stay safer. Okay, but let me add one other thing. If you take a look at a movie like The Untouchables, yep. which I like, I think it's a very good film. It's true. And if you compare that to the real story, about 70% of it is, is just completely false, never happened. Oliver uses dramatic license much less than that, and he gets hammered, Okay. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a very weird double standard, okay? And I think it's for the simple reason that Oliver's films are much more political than, say, somebody like Brian De Palma is, all right? I think it's very unfair. Could JFK, the 1991 version, be made today? Probably not. I mean, it, it would have to be from somebody else. But the thing is, I actually believe that Oliver made the right choice in this. I think he should have made a documentary. For the simple reason, I'm sure you know this, Richard, 
but I'm willing to wager that hardly anybody else does. The Assassinations Record Review Board closed in 1998, which was, you just do the arithmetic, 23 years ago. Mm-hmm. Why did it take me, Oliver Stone, and Rob Wilson to do a report on all the things that they discovered? In the entire four years that they were running, I only recall two news stories, two major news stories of what they did. One was admitting finally in 1997 that Oliver Stone, Fletcher Prouty, and John Newman were right. Kennedy was withdrawing from Vietnam. And the second story was only carried in one newspaper, the Washington Post, and it was a summary of what Doug Horn had written about the mystery of Kennedy's brain. Now, in those four years, the Assassinations Record Review Board declassified 60,000 documents and 2 million pages. And in all that time, only two stories. So here's my question again. Why did it take us 23 years later to go ahead and explore what was in those 2 million pages of documents? If somebody can inform me of why that was, I mean, we can all speculate, but it shouldn't have happened that way. Not at all. All right. Harolyn Sampson asks, what do you think, Jim, of the impact of Marilyn Monroe's death on the JFK assassination? This is one of the biggest piles of baloney that's, that's ever been presented. And Mark Shaw, with his terrible book, is one of the big promoters of this. If you go to a guy named Donald McGovern, his website, Maryland from the 22nd floor, I think it is, or from the 22nd row or something like that. I've written a review of his book, which is called Murder Orthodoxies. There is no relationship at all between the two. It's completely a pile of rubbish. And this includes Gianni Russo, who was in the Godfather movies. It includes all these trashy books, going back to Robert Schlatzer and Norman Mailer. And he exposes that for what it is. There's simply nothing there. There was no impact on either one. You know, and then he tries to bring in Dorothy Kilgallen to this, when in fact, Kilgallen and Marilyn Monroe were never friends. Okay, they, Marilyn Monroe didn't like Dorothy Kilgallen at all. So we tried to stay away from that because it doesn't really merit any serious discussion about why Kennedy was killed or how he was killed. So we tried to stick to the record as exclusively as we could. All right. Richard Warner asks, did the Secret Service really destroy the assassination files in the early 90s? Yes. In about 19, I think it was 1995, okay, they knew that the, the review board wanted the records of Kennedy's visits throughout his administration. But they went ahead and they destroyed... And, and what, what makes this so bizarre is that in the film, which you've seen, I'm very proud that for the first time, the American public is going to see that they tried to kill Kennedy twice before in November. I'm talking about Chicago, right. and I'm talking about Tampa. The first one, I believe, was November the 2nd, 
in Chicago, and the second one was November the 18th. And those are some of the records that they deep-sixed, okay? It was very, very, you know, clearly illegal. And I, I believe the review board should have made more of that. We talked about it in the film with John Thunheim and Tom Samaluk, but I believe they should have made more of that at the time. I think it's very, very important what happened in Chicago, and very, very because if you look at it the way I'm looking at it, Kennedy was not getting out of 1963 because the Chicago plot so closely resembles what happened in Dallas. Okay, and Paul Blow, who is a, also a Canadian. All right, from he teaches at uh, in Quebec City. All right, he's a professor uh, in business. Okay, uh, he talks about this in the film. All right, the Chicago plot is so close to what happened in Dallas that it's it's almost eerie. And if those records would not have been kept secret, if they would have not have been destroyed, you know, they would have probably prevented what happened in Dallas because the pattern was so similar. All right. Was so, was there yes, was Oswald was Oswald trying to warn about that assassination attempt? There's some suggestion that one of the individuals named was actually Oswald, and he was trying to warn them about that plot. Well, no, it wasn't Oswald. It was codenamed Lee. Okay. Now that's a really interesting point. Okay, because uh, the code name for one of the informants on the Chicago plot was Lee. And we're never going to know if that was Oswald or not. Yes, it might have been. It might have not been. But that's one of the things that should have been thoroughly explored by the Warren Commission. And there's no evidence at all that I've been able to find that they explored either the Chicago plot or the Tampa plot, okay, which is an utter and complete disgrace when you think about this. Hmm. And what about the Tampa plot? How was that foiled, by the way? How was the Tampa plot foiled? Okay, at the very last minute, they got a tip from the local police, a guy named Mullins, who was the local chief of police. He got a tip that there was an assassination plot brewing between anywhere from one to three men that Kennedy would be killed from a tall building with a high-powered rifle. Now, on the, the route that Kennedy took, that was one of the longest parade routes ever. There was a very tall building called the Floridian Hotel, which I think was 23 stories, which is pretty tall at that time, back in 1963, all right? And so they put together a kind of platoon of both the local police and the Secret Service and a couple of military guys. And they went into, and on that, in that building, the Floridian Hotel, there was a law enforcement officer on every floor, all 23 floors. Kennedy knew about this, and he went ahead and demanded that every one of those guys meet with him personally because he wanted to shake their hands. See, I, I don't think he wanted to cancel out of this one like they did in Chicago. Okay, they ended up canceling that one at the last minute. 
Most people believe that Patsy in this particular one was going to be a guy named Gilberto Lopez, who was a Cuban exile, who had been to a Fair Play for Cuba committee meeting. After going to Florida, he went to Dallas, and from Dallas he went to Mexico City, and then from Mexico City he went to Cuba. He was the one person on the flight to Cuba. Okay? And, and you can actually find his name online. You just type in Gilberto Lopez, Tampa, Florida plot, and you can find stories about this guy. See, it's, it's such an utter disgrace that neither one of those cases was studied by the Warren Commission. You know, I believe they're both very instructive and very important to what happened to Kennedy in Dallas. We just have a couple minutes here before the uh, the break. When we come back, I know we've talked about this before, but it, it's um, it, it, it's so fascinating to me. And that has to do with Oswell ordering the rifle from Klein Sporting Goods Store in uh, Chicago and the whole timeline of that. Um, but before we do that, and I say we've got about two minutes here, who made the decision that JFK's limo in Dallas would be a convertible. Oh, you know something? I don't think anybody really knows that. But it wasn't Kennedy who uh, said to take off the plexiglass top. That's a myth that gets distributed, okay, a lot, okay? It was just a decision that was made by the Secret Service, all right? And Kennedy kind of would rather do that because it gave him more exposure, okay? He's one of these guys. I mean, you, you see him landing at Love Field. You see him and Jackie Kennedy going out to the crowd and shaking hands with the people there. He, he liked being close to these crowds, you know? Um, and and that's, you know, that's really a kind of a shame, you know, that, uh, that, that that had happened that way. So you know, And I don't, I don't blame that on him. I blame that on the Secret Service. Right. I mean, these guys were out so, getting drunk the night before till three o'clock in the morning, and they paid fire department guys to guard Kennedy while they were getting plowed, okay, with grain alcohol. <laughs> How do you protect wow. somebody on four hours sleep? Unbelievable. That's disgraceful. Yeah. All right, Jim, we're going to roll into a break here at the bottom. Uh, well, we're not quite at the bottom of the hour. When we come back, I, I do want to talk to you about Klein Sporting Goods Store. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show, Jim DiEugenio, world-renowned JFK assassination researcher, wrote the screenplay for Oliver Stone's JFK Revisited. Back with more in a moment. Don't go away. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. All right, we're back. Jim DiEugenio is with us. And uh, the latest Oliver Stone project, JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. Jim wrote the uh, the screenplay. Just before we get into the ordering, the mail order of the rifle through Klein's Sporting Goods in Chicago. Is this Oliver's last word, aside from the book that's coming out and the four-hour version of uh, this documentary coming out in February. Do you think this is it for, for Oliver and JFK? Yes. <laughs> yes. All right. I don't think he's going to go back into the arena again. But I'm, I'm kind of glad that this is going to have a kind of staggered, you know, the two-hour version, then the four-hour version, and then the book. 
because there's going to be three stages to this, which I think is going to make it longer. Okay, and it's going to go from November all the way to February. You know, and so you'll probably want to interview me when the four-hour version comes out. Absolutely. Okay, or maybe when the book comes out. The book is going to be so smashing. Okay, because we had so many terrific interviews that that we couldn't use because of the length factor. But I do believe this would be Oliver's last song on this subject. All right. So the ordering of the uh, the Manlicker uh, rifle through the uh, sporting goods store in Chicago. You've told this story before. It's been a, a few years, and there, I'm, I'm guessing many listeners haven't heard it. This is absolutely remarkable how this all went down. It just defies all credulity, really. Can you walk us through that? All right. And by the way, we touch on this in the film, especially yeah. the longer version. All right. Uh, if, if you believe the Warren Commission, okay, you have to believe that Oswald ordered the rifle, okay, and he mailed a coupon and a money order from the Every uh, Street Post Office, which I think is the main post office in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, all right, that he mailed it to Chicago Klein Sporting Goods Store, which is a 1,000 miles away from the Dallas-Fort Worth area where he was living at the time. That coupon and money order then went to the Chicago Post Office, went off the plane, Chicago Post Office, then it was distributed to the local post office, delivered to Kleins, and at Kleins, they sorted all their funds, okay, by money order, check, cash, in-state, out-of-state. And then they walked it over to the Bank of Chicago. Now, what I just said, this whole long, complicated transaction, if you believe the Warren Commission, that took 24 hours. <laughs> 24 hours. Now, this didn't make it into the film, and I, but I wish it would have. We did an experiment. We had Deborah Conway mail a letter from that very same post office. Okay, and by the way, Oswald didn't even use that post office. He went to a mailbox first. Okay, but, but to play it safe, she mailed it from the post office to a guy who writes for Probe magazine, Mike LaFlemme, who lived at that time in Chicago, one mile from Kleins. It took six days. Now, if you eliminate Sunday, it took five days. But just remember right. this. There might, there's more people today, of course. But back then, they didn't have zip codes. They didn't have high-speed sorters. They didn't have computers. They didn't have sensors. Okay? So I'm sorry. I just don't believe this. Okay? I don't believe that such a thing could happen in a 24-hour period. Now, on the other end, of course, since according to the Warren Commission, the... Um, the uh, rifle was not ordered in his name. It was by a guy named Heidel. Okay. Uh, that rifle delivery should have never gotten to Oswald. 
Because if it's not for the same person, if, it, if the address on the box is not for the same person, it's supposed to be shipped back. Okay? But let's assume, for the sake of argument again, let's assume that he did pick it up at the post office. He would have had to prove that he was using this alias, Heidel. And they would have had to bring out a five-foot box from the back. Now, wouldn't somebody have remembered that? Okay? Especially since there were FBI informants working in that post office. All right? So, in addition to the stuff that's in the film, because we show in the film that the rifle in the backyard photographs is not the same as the rifle that's in evidence. Okay, and we show that in the backyard photographs, I mean, why would you change the hand where you have your ring on from, you know, Marina, I think it'll look better if I put the ring on my right hand rather than on my left hand. Okay. <laughs> this, is the, this is the photograph that's taken at Ruth Payne's house in the backyard. And he's holding up. Yes. Um, he's got the, the worker and the militant, the news, the communist newspaper right. he's holding. And he's got the rifle and the pistol. So right. the suggestion here is that this photograph was, was faked. Yes. Well, Richard, would you change your hand of, um, that your ring is on if you were doing something like that? And plus, of course, the other thing we point out is that the sling mount in the rifle and evidence is on the side. It's, it's screwed into the side. And we also mention in the film that it's the wrong rifle. Oswald ordered a 36-inch rifle. The rifle in evidence is a 40.2-inch rifle, which is classified as a short rifle. The 36-inch version is called a carbine. So for all of these reasons, you know, I do not think that the rifle in evidence was the one that was ordered by, by Oswald. Okay, I just don't think so. I don't think it happened that way. And I think that the American public, and they're going to be informed of at least some of this in the short version, I don't think they'd buy it either. So the idea was to create a, a, a paper trail to, yes. uh, to again, to frame Oswald yes. and, and to show you know, custody of the, of the rifle and so forth. Yes. All right. Uh, back to our YouTube live chat. Toxic Canadian asks, Jim, do you think... You have the answer to the ultimate question. Why was JFK killed? There are a lot of great theories out there. I mean, is there is there one why or are there like, I think there are maybe three, four or five whys. He was I, killed. I, look, I've, I've said this many times and I'll keep on saying it. Okay. Because I've done a lot of work on this issue. All right. I believe that the cover up about who John F. Kennedy was and what he represented, is more systemic, more rigorous, and deeper than the cover-up about how Kennedy was killed. All right, and I believe the reason for that is because it would supply what's called a motive for his assassination. Okay? I believe that Kennedy was changing the foreign policy of the United States too fast and too hard for people in the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the CIA. They were just not going to tolerate that. And they knew that Johnson 
would be much more accommodating. For example, one of the really good things that's in the film, and you probably remember this, Richard, is we have Johnson telling McNamara, okay, that he admits this. It's on tape. He says, I never agreed with what you and the president wanted to do about withdrawing from Vietnam. I thought it was a bad decision psychologically, mm. but I just sat there because I was... He says this on tape. Yeah. We have it on tape in 1964. And then we have John Newman, who was one of the foremost authorities on this issue, the Vietnam issue. We have him listening to McNamara's debriefs. McNamara, he had a relationship with McNamara. Okay, and he allowed him to go in, and because and, I think McNamara retired in late 67. He went in for his debriefs. And he says in his debriefs that the president and I had decided that we could help. We could train them. We could give them equipment. Okay, but we couldn't do anything. more. We couldn't fight the war for them. All right? And when the training session was done, we were going to withdraw, whether we were winning or losing. All right? He says this. John says it. John listened to him. So... Now, if you remember how god-awful that Vietnam War was, okay, Kennedy was never going to commit to that thing, all right? But the military wanted them to do that. So I think that's one of the major reasons. I think the overall foreign policy was the major reason. But I think Vietnam was very important to them, you know? They wanted to go into Laos in 1961, and Kennedy turned them down on that one. Okay, so then they shifted over to Vietnam. And when, by the way, in the long version, we have a very interesting segment on Curtis LeMay, okay, mm. who should have been a person of interest in any real investigation. Curtis LeMay, of course, was the, the uh, chief of the, uh, of the Air Force who Kennedy had a problem with during the missile crisis. If you remember when when Kennedy announced he was going to do the quarantine, Curtis LeMay actually said to his face, you know, this is worse than Neville Chamberlain at Munich. Right. LeMay uh, believed that they could win a, a nuclear... Can you boss? Yeah. I mean, LeMay... But he did. Didn't LeMay, LeMay believed that they could win a nuclear exchange with the Soviets, right? <laughs> he was willing to go to the brink over Vietnam. Yeah. Even he yeah. said, if the Chinese come in, we'll just nuke them. Okay. This is, I mean, come on, give me a break, will you? Right. To, kind to of the inspiration for bombs uh, over that third world country over a war we should have never been involved in. Right. You know? I think George C. Scott's character in um, in Doctor Strange, based on Lemay, if I'm not mistaken. We'll right. take a, a quick time out. Come back, James G. Eugenio. Stays with us. JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. Back with more in a moment. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Jim Eugenio is with us. JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. We were talking about Vietnam. And, of course, one of the big – well, Vietnam was a bonanza for Bell Helicopter. And so it's interesting that – Ruth Payne, who was a friend with Marina Oswald, married to Michael Payne, who was an executive at Bell Helicopter. 
Uh, I mean, is that a coincidence or is that significant? <laughs> well, unfortunately, we didn't have the time to get into Ruth and Michael Payne in the film. If again, if it would have been, if they would have allowed us six hours, which I think it should have been, you know, then we probably would have gotten into Ruth and Michael Payne. But here you have this guy with this clearance at Bell Helicopter, okay, in the defense industry, who's hanging out with this communist who's actually visiting his house, okay, uh, on the weekends to see his wife, all right? Now, that is a little bit weird, I think, all right? And and that's not where it begins or ends. It's, uh, you know, Ruth Payne seems intent upon separating Marina from Lee from almost the minute they met, which I believe was in April of 1963, through the auspices of George de Morinchild. And there's another incredible case. You know, this white Russian, uh, debonair, handsome, you know, who's been through a couple of fortunes in the oil business, chooses to hang out with this so-called Marxist who's a defector from the Soviet Union and defected back. You know, what the heck was that all about? And before he died, George de Morinchild said that he would have never met Oswald in a million years. He was ordered to do so by the CIA station chief in Dallas, J. Walton Moore. All right? So th this whole thing about the supposedly communist Oswald, who was hanging out with the white Russian community in Dallas-Fort Worth and with the Cuban exile community and with Guy Bannister in New Orleans is such a hunk of trash, you know, and that, that, that the Warren Commission never got to the bottom of this is, again, another disgrace upon them. You know, we go into it a little in the film, and we show how the CIA had a program going on to destroy the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. And they also backed Carlos Bringier's group, the DRE, the student uh, directorate national, okay, which began in Cuba, which was started by David Phillips, okay, and David Phillips was also the guy who started the Anti-Fair Play for Cuba Committee uh, campaign that the CIA was doing. So in other words, the CIA is using both ends in order to uh, uh, discredit the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, and you got Oswald working out of Guy Bannister's office, and he actually puts the stamp on one of his flyers, 544 Camp Street, okay, Guy Bannister's office. He was very upset when he learned that, that Oswald had done such a stupid thing. So, yeah, that's another thing we go into, that whole nexus of why would a communist hang out with the white Russian community in Dallas and Guy Bannister and the Cuban exiles in New Orleans. You know, just a, a, incredible stuff that you're supposed to swallow and not ask right. any questions about. In the film, you talk about how Oswald was a person of interest for the CIA for like, f you know, four years leading up to the assassination, and they were going through Oswald's mother's mail. Right. Jefferson Morley, who's done a lot of work on uh, the CIA guys and Oswald's relationship with them, James Angleton, George Joannides, David Phillips. You know, he says that in the film. You know, they were, they were reading Oswald's mail, even his mother's mail. 
Okay, which which you know, and of course, they always said after the assassination, we had no relationship with her. We had no interest in Oswald. Okay, which is a bunch of baloney, you know, utter and complete, you know, lies. Okay, now there's also uh, uh, we go into Otto Otepka in the film. Otto Otepka suspected that Oswald was not a genuine defector. So he sent a list to the CIA wanting to know which one of these guys is real, which one of these guys are fake defectors. In other words, which ones are yours? And Oswald was on that list. Well, he should have never done that because, as we talk about in the film, his career went completely downhill. He was demoted. (laughs) He was surveilled. He was literally kicked out of his office 17 days before the assassination, and his safe, which he was still working on the Oswald case, was drilled into on the day that he was kicked out of his office. Now tell me, now let me ask you this. Do you think you'd find Otto Otepka's name in the Warren Commission? He certainly should have been called as a witness. He was not. All right, unbelievable. One final timeout, Jim, and um, we'll come back and we'll have... A good uh, 10, 11 minutes to kick it around some more. James DiEugenio wrote the screenplay for JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. Back with more in a few minutes. Stay with us. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right, back with Jim DiEugenio a few moments yet. Since those more documents came out around 2017, what would you say, I mean, in that latest tranche of of declassified JFK documents, what do you think was the most damning, let's say, to the Warren Commission's case? Could it be anything to do with uh, The mayor of Dallas, Mm -hmm. who was the brother of the deputy director of the CIA, who was fired by Kennedy that the mayor was a CIA asset. Cabell. Okay. Cabell, yeah. All right. He was a CIA, and it wasn't, we didn't know that until like four years ago. Okay. Wow. <laughs> I think that's kind of important. Okay. Yes. Now, you want to know what makes that even worse? There was a special category that the review board could use to defer declassification. It was called NBR, which means not believed relevant. They put that in NBR. That's why we didn't know about it. Is that incredible? That is incredible. How could it be more relevant? Okay. You know, I mean, but this is the kind of thing that they had to do because they, they simply couldn't complete their job in four years. They needed, I think we got Tunheim to say in the film, okay, I don't know if it's in the film, but he said it in his interview, they, they, they should have been there for six years, okay, to make sure they got everything. What the CIA always does is they wait you out. They know that you're only going to be temporary. They know they're going to be there forever. And so that's what they do. They delay and delay and delay. What about? I think this came out in 2017, and I and I, um, I think you are one of the few that spotted these 
documents. It had to do with evidence that Ruby and Oswald knew each other before they met, you know, that fateful day in the Dallas courthouse. uh, And they met on several (laughs) occasions and were seen by witnesses uh, together. Yeah, there was there was a document that I saw that said that Ruby was with Oswald as Ruby was searching for some music amplifiers for his club. And the guy who that was selling the musical equipment told the FBI that he had seen Oswald with Ruby on that day. Okay? Uh, they came in together, and they left together. Now, of course, the Warren Commission made up every kind of excuse they could to not have this guy testify, okay? But it seemed very, very interesting to me, you know, to to, to say the least, all right? The, the whole idea of uh, Ruby walking down that ramp, okay, and somehow just timing it so perfectly, okay, and going ahead and shooting Oswald in front of 40-some policemen is, is so ridiculous. Today we know it is. I spent a lot of time on this in my book, The JFK Assassination, The Evidence Today, because it's not, it, it's not what happened. Oswald, or Ruby did not come through that ramp, that front ramp. Ruby came in a door behind that. And by the way, the Western Union office was like almost like across the street from the back of the police headquarters, all right? Very easy to signal, Ruby, that this is the time to come in. And that's what I believe happened. Back to the YouTube live chat. MG, well, this is the Lollapalooza. Who is responsible for the assassination of JFK? Now, first of all, we have the trigger man or trigger people, uh, and then we have the people behind the trigger people. Let's start with who actually fired the fatal head wound. Do you know who that was? Do you have an idea? No, no. I, I don't think anybody really does. I believe that from the evidence that the CIA black ops were in charge of the ground level operation. I believe that then the joint chiefs like Curtis LeMay agreed to go along with it by covering up the autopsy. Now, I will also say this, though. There had to be a level even above that, okay, because these guys knew you know, we need the media in our back pocket to to carry this black op over, okay? The story is just so ridiculous. We're going to need people like Paley. We're going to need people like the Sarnoffs, et cetera. We're going to need people like Leonard Goldberg at ABC, okay? They're going to have to Dan support Rather. us. What about Dan Rather? Oh, yeah. And all these, see, and, and so, and so I, I believe that they've got it approved at a level above that, whatever you want to call it the power elite, the Eastern establishment, the CFR, etc., those kind of things. And that's why the media fell into line. What the media did in this case is, is an utter sacrilege to what they're supposed to do. And, and, don't, and don't for a second believe it was not deliberate. It was. Because when CBS wanted to do, in 1967, when they really wanted to do an exploration of the assassination... They were slapped down by upper management, okay? Frank Stanton and Paley decided they weren't going to do it. They said, no way. We're not going to challenge the Warren Commission. We're going to support the Warren Commission. And they came up with that god-awful show with John McCloy, in which he actually served as a secret consultant 
on that program, that four-part program in 1967. We talk about that a little in the two-hour version. I think there's more in the four-hour version on that. Yeah, John McCloy, one of the um, members of the Warren Commission. Now, wasn't it McCloy, I'm not sure what his role was back in the 30s, but wasn't he sitting during the the Olympics in Berlin in 1936, wasn't he sitting next to Hitler in the uh, yeah, at the Olympics? That's, that's true. He was working on a very famous case uh, concerning German espionage in the United States, and he actually did go over to the Olympics, and he was sitting in Hitler's box in 1936. Okay, but, but John McCloy, you know, later on, he's the guy who's responsible for the Japanese internment. Nobody pushed that as hard as McCloy did. You know, and he also was a guy who objected to bombing the railroad lines going into the death camps in Europe. Okay, I mean, this guy was really, there's a good book about him called The Chairman by Kai Bird. He was really, and by the way, he's the one who pushed uh, Carter to let the Shah of Iran into the United States for David Rockefeller, because David Rockefeller was a friend of the Shahs, and he wanted the Shah in the United States, and McCoy was the major lobbyist on that. So here's a guy who was responsible for those three things serving on the goddamn Warren Commission. I mean, come on. You know, <laughs> and Dulles, Alan Dulles, to have Alan Dulles. Oh, please. On the I didn't want to talk about this guy. Okay. We had that great clip. clip. You I just wanted to talk about this. Right, where Eric Severide asked Dulles, yeah. have you ever been responsible for an act of violence in your life? Yeah. And Dulles <laughs> puffs on his pipe and says, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, he, yeah. He took about 20 seconds to think about it while he carefully lit his pipe. <laughs> and then there's a scene in the in the film where Kennedy, uh, or sorry, Alan Dulles reaches out to shake Kennedy's hand, and he just turns away. Yeah, isn't, it, isn't that terrific? I think that kind yes. of summarizes, okay, you know, the whole relationship. People may be not aware of the fact that the Warren Commission was not like a unanimous decision. It was like four to three, right? You had Hale Boggs, Richard Russell Coop, Jr., Cooper, and John Sherman Cooper Hale, all voted against, right? Yes, they were against the single bullet theory. And then they went ahead and they suckered Russell, thinking that it was going to be in the record, his protest, was, and it wasn't. Okay, and that's why Russell turned against the commission. He was the first guy to go ahead and turn on the commission, I believe, in 69 or 70, when he found out what they had done to him. And then Hale Boggs later dis- disappears dis- uh, in, a, in a plane crash, right, I guess. over Alaska. That- but before that... Before that, he was even more violent about Hoover when he found out what had, what had happened, what Hoover had done to the Warren Commission. He basically said he lied to us about the rifle. He lied to us about the bullets. He lied to us about everything. He actually said that. Okay, that's how violent. And then, of course, Cooper told a BBC interviewer, and I think 1971 or a little bit later, that he didn't buy the single bullet theory. Okay, and then when you add in Gerald Ford, you know what we have about Gerald Ford, don't you? About him telling Valerie DeStang, okay, that, no, we knew that an organization had killed Kennedy, we just couldn't find out who it was. So you have four people right there, you know, it's a minority report. 
<laughs> right, right, exactly. All right, Jim, people really need to check it out. It's in many ways, the, I don't know, the culmination of a, a lifetime of work for you to see this up on the screen. Congratulations, JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. And I look forward to the, uh, the four-hour version coming out in February. We'll have you back on. Thank you so much, Richard. Have a good one. You too, James D. Eugenio. My thanks to Ryan White and Carlos Cagina back next week with a brand new program. Until then, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. Good night.